Hi, this is Chris Foreman from Madness, and you're listening to the Stateside Madness podcast. <laughs> Hi there, folks out there. I'd like you to meet Tommy McGuire's combo. Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. everybody welcome back to stateside madness the podcast by american madness fans for american fans this is Lori, and this is Polly. so we have two special treats for you today the first is we have a special guest in our studio hector walker hector worked with madness from 1981 till about 1986 or so and he's going to share some stories with us we also were able to dig into the madness information service archives. Now, as you might or might not know, Stateside Madness is an American offshoot of MIS. And MIS allowed us to dig into their archives to find some old concert footage from around this time period. So we'll be listening to some songs from the band live during this time period that Hector is going to talk about. Hector you're, you know, I should have asked you, Hector, your title, at, were you were the tour manager of the band or what was your, your title when you were with the band? Okay, I don't know whether I even had a job title, but basically um, I wasn't the tour manager. I used to help out the tour manager. Somebody once said I was the gopher, which means you kind of go for this, go for that. And on the road, particularly, I one of the main jobs was kind of looking after the band's wardrobe. And I then got involved in looking after you know, kind of costumes and stuff for all the videos and TV shows, etc. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you have a, a familial connection to the band as well. <laughs> I do. So yeah, my so the reason I got a job was that my cousin was the lead singer. So Suggs and I are first cousins. Okay. So we want to talk a little bit, obviously, about your your days with the band, your days with Madness, but then we also want to talk about what you've been doing since then. And uh, I understand that you've been working on a book and I'm very curious to hear about that as well. So we'll kind of, we'll just kind of take this as it goes. So Polly, do you want to start with a question or? Sure. So um, let's move on, I guess. I guess what we want to do is have you talk a little bit about the time period between October, you know, 1981 to 1985 or 86 or so. know in the the very general things Uh, what was it like being a young man associated with the act what was the atmosphere like Uh, hijinks anything like that okay yeah so um i was a young man in those days so i was um 17 i think i was when i started working for the band and yeah as you say october 1981 the they had just released their third album which was, oh, you're going to test my knowledge now. I think it was seven. Was that right? Yeah. Okay. So they just released seven and they were just about to start a, um, their UK tour promoting that album. So that's how I started. So I, I would, 
<laughs> I was brought up in, in West Wales. I don't know what your geography is like, but it's a very rural community. And I, I, I visited London a few times, but then almost kind of overnight, I was transported from rural West Wales, um, didn't do very well at school, into working, living in London, which was completely unfamiliar. And then um, working with band, working with this kind of really famous band. And it was, a, it was just a massive culture shock really was, was one of the things. I mean, for example, the, so my auntie, Suggs' mum was, I, stay, I lived with her. And um, I used to be late for work most days because I didn't even know what bus to get on or what tube train to ride to get to the, the rehearsal room. Um, and I just kind of pitched up and then people would tell me what I might have to do or they'd ask me to run out and make tea or whatever. But actually, the, the, one of my main memories from that little period at the end of 1981, <clears throat> so they, my first job was working with the band as they were rehearsing for the tour. And during those rehearsals, they started um, putting together and arranging and rehearsing um, It Must Be Love. And so I was kind of knocking around and, you know, doing what, all my jobs and things. As the band was starting to put that, that, that song, it wasn't their song, but as they were starting to rehearse it and get it ready to be recorded. And then the record, the guy who ran the record company, Dave Robinson, he was saying, right, guys, you've got to get this sorted and we're going to release it as it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a Christmas number one. He said, it's going to be a Christmas number one. It's going to be a number one at Christmas. And, and they started recording it on that tour. Um, and so off we went. We just, that was it. I was kind of, <laughs> before I knew it, I was on the tour bus and we were off to wherever the first gig was. Nothing more, nothing less 
Good night. Leave your seats to go home. Thank you. But yeah, it was, um, and 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 that was it. Then it was just pretty much non-stop for probably about four years, touring, doing videos, TV shows. You know, so we'd you know TV they'd be releasing a single you know a few times a year. And you just fly out to Paris or something, you know, sounds very ex exotic. You'd fly out somewhere for a couple of days, um, you know, do the TV show, all that kind of stuff. And then you come home. <clears throat> and then what happened was I'd been employed to, to work on the tour initially. And at the same time, they changed managers and the manager decided they'd keep me on. So when they weren't on the road or doing other things, I'd work in the fan club and help with the kind of mail order part of the fan club and, and and that was kind of it then you just kind of got on with it really <laughs> it was literally as simple as that it was all a bit um kind of make it up as you go along you know and that's how they that's that's how we made the videos as well you know everybody would pitch in and do their bit and i'd get a big list of things you know props and wardrobe and costumes and then after i'd go and put it all together with a tiny little budget you know, about 20 quid to get seven suits or something. I don't know. <laughs> it was like a ridiculous amount of money. <laughs> and we just did it. We just put it all together. And, and the lasting memory was we, we, we laughed. We just had a laugh most of the time. I mean, obviously, if you, I mean, obviously, there are times when you're on tour for six weeks and it's back to back and people get tired and you get a little bit of kind of fractious occasionally. But more often than not, we just had a laugh, you know, and it's hard to think of specific things, but it was just fun. Yeah. Well, can we talk a little bit about the videos? So you have little cameos in a few videos that some of our listeners might know. And I know what you're, you're actually, you look like you're a little embarrassed as I'm saying this, but um, <laughs> so I know you're in the, the very beginning of the bed and breakfast, man, that you walking mm -hmm. past Chrissy boy. I know that you have a cameo in, um, uh oh what arlington house yes which why am i forgetting the name of the song oh my gosh come on polly what was it one better day thank one you better day. Yeah, thank yeah. you and uh then there was a third one that you were in and i can't remember but even not being necessarily on either side of the camera right whether you're in front of the yeah. camera or behind the camera can you tell us any uh um memories you have of making any of the videos i mean because madness is really they're very well known for their videos right i think that's a lot of the reason that they blew up over here yeah. um so do, i mean were there any uh stories about making any of the videos that come to mind 
Well, you know those in, those cameos you talk about. So um, the one better day one was, um, I think it was a last minute thing. They decided they were going to put a for sale sign up, and I was there, and I said, "Hector, climb the ladder, and we'll stick you at the end of the video." And so that literally that's how that came about. And then the other ones you talked about. So the other cameo there was what did you say? There was our house, the intro to our house, right? And um, what was the other one you meant? Oh, Bed and Breakfast Man. I don't know if you realise, but those those videos were made separately. And those little cameo bits that I'm seen in now were done a few years later. And the cameos, um, I can't remember when it was, 82, 83, they put out their first Greatest Hits album and there was a kind of Greatest Hits video thing, compilation. And they decided to do introductions to each video and that's how I got into those cameo bits. And so when you look on YouTube now, it looks like I'm part of the whole thing, but I, I was part of a, a separate thing that was edited on later. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's right. Oh, our house, you're the one that, when, when Chaz says, have you seen our house? And you say, it's yeah. over there, mate. Yeah, that's you. That's yes, yes. Okay, <laughs> but uh, so you were also helping though with the production of the videos, like you mentioned, yeah. you know, getting costumes and stuff like that. Any stories that you can share about, you know, the making of the videos or anything, any? Well, oh God, I'll try off the top of my head. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, not one, right, I will brag. Because uh, <laughs> I did a couple of TV show cameos as well. I don't know if you knew about that. Actually, so, yeah, we dug those up. There was one you were uh, taking the place of, I think Mike Barson on keyboard. Like twice I took the place of Mike. Yeah, so okay. It was, I think it was, it might have been after, it was probably after Mike had left and so we would, they were booked to do a TV show in Germany and it was mimed. And so it was like, right, okay, you're about the right, you're about, Mike and I are both about six foot three, six foot four, right? You're about the right size. Your suit will, his suit will fit you, stick it on, on you go. And that was the German one. And then another one, which I've never seen a copy of was they were also booked to do um, a, a TV show in Poland, in Warsaw. And so I stood in for Mike for that one. But when we, actually, when we were there, it was around the time of um, Solidarity Movement. Do you remember that? When all that kind of stuff was going on. And so we arrived and the record company said, right, here's a, gave them a load of money, which was cash, Polish money, which was Zlotys. And you couldn't even take it back to the UK to get it um, changed into UK currency. So it was a bit, and there was nothing to buy there. All the shops were empty, kind of Eastern Bloc. Um, so we arranged through the translator to get the money over to the Solidarity Movement. I don't know how he did it, and we never asked. But we said to him, can you make sure that the Solidarity Money uh, Movement get this? I can't remember how much cash it was. And that was it. We didn't bring it back to the UK. Sometimes she needs a rest, the kids are playing with them. 
then you were on the scene right before madness started to blow up over here in the United States. Cause it was like 82 is when they really started to hit over here. Um, what was that like uh, being involved with the band being, you know, an observer and all this, when all of a sudden this international fame started to hit, did that change things for everybody over there? I don't know whether it did change things notice, noticeably at the time. I think it was, I think it was, it, in the, uh, there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of excitement kind of around management. There was a lot of excitement, I think around the band and around um, the management because, you know, management had worked really hard to get that deal. And then our house kind of just took off and it was like, was it top 10 over there? It, it did like, really well, yeah. yeah. But I think for me, it was just in the context of, all oh, right, we're going on another tour, great where are we going this time kind of thing. And it was, oh, I've not been to America. How exciting. <laughs> and it was really, you know, I do remember actually, cause I was probably about 18, 19 then, the first stop was New York. So we flew into New York and we landed and it was early morning. And um, we were driving into sort of downtown New York and I was just blown away by the kind of vastness of the place and the busyness. And then of course you drive around the corner and there's a couple of guys kind of break dancing on the sidewalk and stuff. And it was just like, oh my God, this is proper America. This is really is kind of New York <laughs> coming from North London. Um, yeah, and it was, and then, and that, so that kind of blow up, if you like, we, we, we did quite a long tour of, of, the, of America. Um, was that 82, 83? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, I was there. Um, so on that tour, it was really odd as well, because in some parts of America, they were really popular, like East Coast, West Coast, which seems to be. And then um, other parts, we were playing little tiny nightclubs. And they took this massive production with all seven members of the band, a string section, a trumpet player, and all the crew. So some nights we were on like big theatres like we were in Chicago or, or supporting the police in a stadium. And then the next night we'd be in this tiny club where everybody was like kind of shoulder to shoulder. Kind of, um, but we just kind of got on with it. This yeah. This is an older one, it's called Peter's Pete. you know policeman. I'm not a 
It was exciting it was exciting there was that sense that oh my god they're going to become like a proper kind of international band if, if you know what i mean yeah it was, it was great i mean on that tour actually they when we got to new orleans we ended up playing on a paddle ship the, the gig was on a paddle ship so we all, all the gear and all the band we all got loaded in and then it went up and down the mississippi for a couple of hours and then uh, pull back in and everybody got off and that was the end of the show. <laughs> oh my gosh, that had to be so cool. I would have invented a time machine just so I can go to that that <laughs> show on a paddle boat on the Mississippi. I'm trying to imagine. Night boat to Cairo down the Mississippi yeah. River. That's I mean unfortunately awesome. they were they were playing right down inside the boat. So you didn't get a, you couldn't see, you know, it was like you could have been in a little nightclub somewhere. So you didn't really get this feel of the of the paddle ship and the and the river and all that. But yeah, it was really cool.
Hector, um, fans, fans want to know, uh, you know, the band being famous for their good sense of humor, um, their hijinks and uh, the general nuttiness of the band. Um, you got to have a road story where they got into some sort of mischief. <laughs> anything, anything coming to mind? Well, let's be diplomatic. Okay, there's a few things. There's a few things come to mind. Do you know the story? Actually, talking of hijinks, but um, I, later on in their career, they I can't remember what we were organising—a video or a photo shoot—and they wanted to use one of the big train stations in uh, London. And I was trying to involve and organise it and 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 what have you. And the message we were getting from um, the organisation London Transport was, no, we're not having them. We're not having madness working. And I don't know what had happened, but they'd done a video some, like a few years before, and something had gone wrong, or they'd been mischievous or whatever, to the point that London Transport, who ran all the all the kind of metro tube system, just wouldn't have them anywhere near any of their buildings. But the, do you know the story of when, of um, of Lee taking me shoplifting? Do you know that? Have you heard that story? Uh, repeat it for our fans. Okay, so on the on the so one of the kind of in jokes, if you like, and I'm it's public knowledge, so I'm not you know disclosing anything, is that Lee, um, as they would say over here, has long pockets and very short arms, <laughs> and and likes and he's quite attracted to having things that aren't his. So anyway, he. On the first tour, I was 17. Now I'm six foot four and I was quite skinny then. And he's about four, you know, five foot nothing and very stocky. And um, so on this particular day, I used to have to have, you know, some petty cash to buy things and whatnot for them. He sort of came to me and said, Here, Hector, here, Hector, have you got any money? I need a new jumper. I need a jumper for stage. I was like, yeah, of course, Lee, come on. And and so we left the venue <clears throat> and there's hundreds of Madness fans all over the streets of this town. And we went into one of the big um, like department stores in whatever city we're in, Bristol, I think. And uh, it was near closing time. And we were sort of wandering around and I was a bit kind of naive and not very streetwise. And the kind of staff were all kind of by the door waiting to close up. And we were looking at these just regular jumpers. And all of a sudden he said, Echt, Echt, stand behind, stand behind me, son, stand behind me. <laughs> so I like, just stood right behind him. And before I knew it, there was a jumper was off the hanger and stuffed down the front of his trousers, down the front of his jeans, and we ran out. And, and that was like a kind of baptism of fire, I think. It was like, could I handle it? And did I you know, kind of grass him up? And that was it. We ran off down the street and he'd stolen this bloody jumper right in front of me. But then a few years later, we were in a TV studio in Holland somewhere and he'd, he'd, he'd scuttled off somewhere to do something. And again, you know, erect, erect, I found something. I want to take it home <laughs> back to the back to London. And he'd found this 
wooden prop, which was a kind of alarm clock, which was about about two foot wide. It was like, a, you, I don't know if you can see it. So it was like this big thing painted red. And he said, oh, this will be great for a video. I don't know which one, but I'm going to use it for a video. Can you just stick it in one of the suitcases and take it back through customs? I was like, oh, okay, I'll give it a go, Lee, see what happens. See, what, Hopefully I won't get arrested. So yeah, that was not uncommon <laughs> for something like that to happen. Did the clock get used in a video then, or was that just... No. No, no, just sat around in their <laughs> office in London for out for years. <laughs> Never got used. <laughs>
was there anybody in the band that you really had a, a good connection with? I mean, I know, you know, obviously Suggs being that he was your cousin, but mm-hmm. I mean, is there anybody else in the band that you really just kind of, I don't know, clicked with? The thing to kind of, I suppose, putting it into a context, this is the long answer, into a context that actually, um, like when you're you're kind of, it's probably the same with all bands, but like you're traveling with Madness and you're in this little sort of bubble, you're in your sort of tour bubble, I think, you know, it's not, maybe it's a bit of a rock and roll cliche, where it's, you know, the band and their crew, so with, with Madness, it was like, you know, that kind of huddle was, you know, the seven members of the, of the band, myself, the manager, the tour manager, their sound engineer, Ian, um, who worked with them for like 30 years, and a couple of the roadies. So Tokes and Chalky, have you heard those names? I didn't work with Chalky, but Tokes I worked quite a lot with. Um, so there was quite a, a big kind of gang, if you like, and a proper entourage, yeah. And we all got on really well, most of the time. So in answer to your question, I don't know whether I clicked with any anyone's in particular. Um, kind of on tour, I probably, you know, in the social bit of, of touring, shall we say, <laughs> um, I probably spent more time with um, Suggs and Carl and Chris and Lee, I guess. But that's not because... Of, of any particular reason. I think that was just the, the way it was. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so now I still, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm still in touch with, with Suggs and, and with Carl as well, Chaz. So, so Chaz was always Carl. We all call him by Christian name. Uh, so I'm still in touch with those guys, but whenever I do go to a, a Madness gig now, it, it kind of does feel like we just kind of click back into the old banter, the old jokes. Remember when, uh, you know, always remember when Lee took Hector shoplifting kind of story always comes back. Uh, then they tell a few embarrassing ones about me when I was, you know, had too much to drink and I, oh, I'm going to tell it. Uh, no, let, let's hear no, that. No, no, yeah. now you have to spill. You have to spill now. <laughs> I started. Okay. So there was a, in a hotel in Florida when I had too many drinks late one night and I decided I was going to go for a swim in the pool and somebody might have a photo of me somewhere like kind of this gangly 18 year old in a swimming costume and a lilo I'd got from somewhere. It's like three o'clock in the morning and, and something else, I can't remember. I'm trying to climb over the fence into this flipping swimming pool. And so they always remind me of, oh, I remember Hector was at the lilo running up and down the hotel corridor. So we just kind of slipped back into those old, old things. And, and that's amazing too i mean because we're talking like 40 years for some of this stuff that you guys are still able to slip back into that mode after all this time that's that's yeah. that's great that's amazing yeah um and, and, and one other thing i suppose i'm more of an observer now because my life is so removed from that and has been for 20 years but when on those occasions when i do go and see them and we're kind of back in the dressing room again it does feel like we could be back 30 years. You know, the banter's the same. You know, the jokes are pretty much the same in many ways. You know, the, the organisation is very different. It's a lot more professional now, as I, th- I think the music business is. But it, it is a bit like being transported back 30 years. 
you know, everybody takes the mickey out of each other and all that kind of stuff. Was there ever an event um, on the road that was just like a catastrophic type of failure? Uh, equipment went missing or um, a travel delay that you couldn't make a show? There was a bomb scare. <clears throat> there was a bomb. I, that was the first thing that came to mind, actually. Again, on that first, the first tour I did. Um, so that was 81. And still in those days, the um, the IRA were, were very active. And, you know, living in London, it was not uncommon for you to, you know, for them to be a bomb scare in central London. You have to leave where you are. The roads were cordoned off. So that was quite a live kind of thing going on in those days, you know. And on that first tour, they played a little tiny venue somewhere. Really small venue. And... The support band were on and they came off and then all of a sudden uh, somebody appeared and said there's a bomb scare the ira have done a bomb have, you know and there's a there's a coded system for them they used to do and we all had to evacuate evacuate the building and this venue was like in the middle of nowhere it was like a kind of tiny little club somewhere and there was no reason i could think of why 
they'd want to blow up but it was really serious so, so we all had to pile out and all sort of you know all the, like a few thousand fans and the band and all the crew had to go and pile out into the car park in the rain and then uh, you know the police came and then it was all fine and actually they did manage to do the show but I've got a vague memory that in Australia somewhere that a, va- a lorry broke down my, this memory is quite vague and sorry Polly that and we had to cancel a show but more I, I I don't remember them ever apart from that one time ever not doing a show that I can remember it, it always happened somehow or other it always happened yeah I mean you know there were <clears throat> you know like there was a bomb scare equipment failed you know the whole pa failed once somewhere in in florida and in the middle of the chaos one of the kind of road crew broke his leg because he fell off the side of the stage trying to fix something um but the show went back on and it just did um you know rarely would it happen that that we didn't do what we're supposed to be doing i mean in terms of kind of timing (laughs) Uh, one of my many jobs was to kind of get the band on the bus or plane or whatever on time. And notoriously, some of the guys would not get up and you would have to get the master key from the hotel manager, pack their luggage, put it onto the bus for them, practically shoulder them over your, that on your back to get them off on time. And there was... There was one occasion where one of the band didn't get up and we had a flight home back to the UK and we left him there. We left him in New York. And you're not going to tell us who that is, huh? (laughs) I don't know whether to or not. All right. I respect that. Um, Um, Anyway, so yeah, we we made this, the decision was, you know, all the band, everybody else, got on the bus and they'd gone off to the airport and they were checking in we assumed and then him and i were there and we just couldn't get him out of bed and and it was like either we stay and get carl out of bed or um we're gonna miss the flight ourselves so we went home i I think you might have given it away there how did he get home then (laughs) He got you know? No, I mean, we didn't completely abandon him, you know, <laughs> arrangements were made, you know. Okay. We left him $5 in reception to kind of get... <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, we, my. No, no, the, you know, we his tickets were there available and we made sure that, I think actually before we left, the manager rescheduled his flight so he could get the later flight. We had, I think ours was early morning and, and there was a late one that afternoon. Mr. Cahafold-Smith. My name is Michael
on a number of tours with them which tour was your favorites probably two come to mind see we're going back many years <laughs> so that's the delay i think the, the that tour we just talked about when they went to america in 82 83 because of partly because it was america and it was just like the kind of golden goose for me you know you you just want to you've got to go to, to america believe it or not guys um and i think partly because it was it was really exciting kind of going that far um the, the it was so different like i was saying you'd be on a on a kind of in a nightclub in miami run by the mafia one night and then you'd be in shea stadium with the police the next day and then, you know, on a paddle boat, it was so diverse. And I and and we also had four days off in the middle of that tour on a beach in Florida, which was a kind of dream. <laughs> um, and then, of course, on that tour, they did um, one show in California with David Bowie. So, uh, you, you know, you're, you're touring with a kind of pop group, and then they're supporting David Bowie. You, you know. So that really, really sticks out in, in my mind, absolutely. And actually, I remember that it was on that show. It was um, is it the Anaheim Stadium near Los Angeles? Would that make sense? Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, so they Bowie was playing there, and Madness was one of the opening acts. 
<coughs> and I, I do remember it was like it was a you know it was ridiculously large you know like the backstage area had greyhound buses parked in it which is very different from the day before where you've got a backstage area where you can barely get seven men seven members of the band into a dressing room fast and David Bowie came into the dressing room to say hello to Madness and I remember the kind of in myself being a, a massive fan uh grew up listening to Bowie because my sisters my older sisters were really into him it was always there and he kind of you know god this godlike man walked in and came in and chatted to some of the band and I do remember kind of being in complete awe and then and then, then a bit later on <coughs> um because he didn't send you know one of his people spoke to some one of our people who spoke to one of somebody else's people and the message came through that his son was a madness fan could we get a signed t-shirt so i that was something i would organize and we didn't have any madness t-shirts so in the middle of the of the afternoon i had to go up from the backstage right out into the middle of the stadium where there's thousands of fans queue up at a merchandise store buy one of the madness t-shirts that's being sold <laughs> take it backstage get them to sign it and then give it back to his pa or whoever it was <clears throat> yeah the other we went to japan once that was pretty amazing um just because it's so different you know culturally it's just so diverse and that was yeah that was quite an experience as well <clears throat> so those are the two i guess that that kind of come to mind there's a big video screen up there i 
Well, I kind of had a question about your cousin. Okay. Uh, I've just always wondered, you know, Graham, uh, when he came home and started telling people, call me Suggs, what was the family's reaction? I'm just curious. Okay. That's interesting, actually, because, <clears throat> I mean, as everybody knows, he lived with my family for a couple of years when, when we were all kids. Um, and that was in West Wales. So then... He went, he, that was only for a couple of years. And then he went back to London. Um, and I think he became Suggs when he was back in London, when he was a teenager. And then, so for my family in Wales, all we knew, no, his, his mum, you know, there'd been contact. We would kind of see each other for summer holidays because we were all still in school. <clears throat> and he might visit us and I'd go up to London a, a couple of times and we were all kind of kids. Um, and then, we heard that his mum, you know, his mum had said, oh, um, Graham's in a band. And then the next thing we know, his mum phoned up and said, oh, Graham's band. Do you know the show Top of the Pops over here? Okay, so that was the only show in the UK where you could have pop music going on, where you'd have like the charts and, and, and music. So it was the, the thing. So we get this call from his mum. Oh, Graham's band is going to be on top of the pops on Thursday night. And it was only after that that we started to read and hear that he was then known as Suggs. That's because we just didn't know. And all the family, all the rest of, you know, like my family still refer to him as Graham. So my sisters, my mum when she was alive, his mum when she was alive, but they all call him Graham. And I guess because I was kind of working there and that was who he, he was only ever known as Suggs, I kind of joined in that 
that was yeah. So okay, I was just curious, you know. Yeah, I, does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, Polly, you're next. Well, uh, that does uh, bring up something though. So all seven guys in the band have a nickname. Uh, they must have called you something. Yeah, they did. Uh, is something besides Hector? <laughs> well, we to tell you, don't you? <laughs> oh yeah, I might know. I think I That's... might know. Okay, go on. They, call, they called you Hector the Strider Walker. Yes. How did you know that? I know all. <laughs> no, I think in in one of uh, in one of the DVD commentaries, uh, Carl called you that. Wow. Yeah, because I'm assuming because you're, you're long legs and you walk very quickly. Do you know, that's really weird, actually, because I, I was, right, name dropping. Um, I was talking to Carl quite recently, and he, he referenced that because there's nowhere else in, in any other part of my life where I'm called, he used to call me the Strider. Um, it was partly because I'm, I was, you know, um, gangly. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm tall and, and I was quite thin then. Um, but he was also saying, oh, no, it's because I used to think you could just uh, take everything in your stride. Oh. Yeah, and I think it was. I think possibly because, you know, there were times when, you know, when it's really, really busy and you're trying to put a video together or on tour and there's seven people all want something and what heck the heck what's this where's that blah, 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 blah. and i just seem to be quite able to take it in my stride and that, and he was saying recently that's where he got it from so it was carl who came up with that nickname wow that's quite a compliment yeah massive compliment yeah yeah how is he doing by the way i know a few years ago he'd had a, a, a bout with cancer but it sounded like from his facebook that he's made a full recovery he's doing okay he was really well. He was in great form. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really good form. Yeah. <clears throat> That's good. Uh, if, if we could then, uh, it sounds like you'll be speaking with them. Uh, we don't have any asks, but, uh, you know, just tell them that American fans still love him. Nobody's forgotten him. And and we do have a podcast, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah, very We're shameless. Very We're shameless. <laughs> so um, I guess then. Why did you ultimately leave, move on? Uh, was that it was probably around the time that the band broke up, 85, 86, right? Is that you then moved on along with everybody else or? Um, a couple of things happened. Um, it, it was around that time. So they, sorry, I'm making a noise in the background. Just get myself a drink. They, so the band, I used to just really like touring. I was young, it was exciting. And so around that, whenever that was, 86, 87, the band uh, were were not touring very much and it didn't look they were like they were they were gonna tour for some time. Yeah, they were kind of in the about how can I put it? It was not long before they split up, shall we say. <clears throat> and I had done some I'd done a couple of tours. So I did um, two tours with uh, George Benson, you know, the, the jazz guitarist. I had, a pro I had a job title for that. On the, on, the tour, on the tour program, it says, Mr. Benson's valet, Hector Walker. So, so you, was, 
You at least had a title then. Yeah, I had a proper <laughs> job title. So I was like, his, yeah, so I was his, I was the gentleman's gentleman for George Benson. So I did two tours around Europe and uh, and then I did um, some roading for a band called the Passion Puppets who were on Stiff Records. And then Madness weren't doing much work. I didn't get any other kind of touring work, which I was, and I just, I think I just got itchy feet. I was just restless and I want, you know, I wanted more adventure and they weren't really doing much. And, you know, I was kind of doing a lot of work in their office and I had a friend who had, uh, who had done a lot of traveling when they were younger and he'd been to India a lot. And I, it was almost a kind of on a whim said, that's it. I'm off to India. And within a month I was on a plane and went off to India and that, yeah. So yeah, uh, that's right. I think in that process, in the kind of six or eight months leading up to that, I think madness had, they had split up. That's right. Cause I worked on their last video for ghost train and yeah. And yeah, lots of stuff was going on. Um, so there wasn't much kind of work for me and I had some savings and I thought, and, and that was it, I'm going. <laughs> so I literally had a backpack and I flew out to, to India. And yeah, there was, so there was no kind of major kind of trauma. It was just like, right, okay, my next adventure is this, that's, that's finished and I'm off, off going to do something else. Yeah. That, that's fantastic. Um, that's uh, both, uh, you know, a little uh, adventurous, but uh, kind of brave as well. Um, so fill folks in on what's been happening between that, uh, that break in India and, and where you are now. Yeah, I went to India whenever that was, 1987, and I traveled for a year. So I did India, Nepal, um, and then I came back to Europe and I kind of hitchhiked and around Greece and Holland and Germany and just kind of bummed around really. I, I mean, I slept rough occasionally, slept on the beach some of the time, did kind of whatever jobs I could where, you know, earning a few, few kind of quid in hotels or whatever. So I did that for a year and then I came back to the UK and is my cat making you laugh? <laughs> I'm trying to be serious, man. <laughs> so sorry. I have a crazy cat lady. No, so you I because I'm doing loads of kind of Zoom stuff. So on Microsoft Teams meetings. So I'm like in a kind of professional meeting, and the cat appears. And then sometimes I'm talking to to patients because I'm working from home a lot. And again, the cat appears, and I'm trying to be you know really kind of a professional, empathic, and all that. And the bloody cat is going. Duh, duh, duh. But okay, so okay. you you mentioned your patients. So what are you what are you doing now professionally? Okay, so yeah, so back you know moving back, I did that traveling. I came back to the UK. I didn't have any money. I didn't have anywhere to live, and I moved and I came back to where I'm living now, which is uh, an area called Pembrokeshire in Southwest Wales, which is rural, coastal kind of uh, community, and. I did various jobs. I, I literally had that kind of survival. What I'd had no qualifications. I'd worked for madness, kind of so what, <laughs> in a way. Uh, 
and I did various jobs. And then, then I had this kind of, I was working in a hotel and I literally had a eureka moment. I, I, I was reading kind of books about psychology and, and things like that. And I had a eureka moment. I think I want to help people. And I think I want to be a psychologist. And that was about 25 years ago. So then I had to, I, you know, I'd left school with no qualifications. I joined the circus, as we've just been talking about, and ran away. And um, so I had to go back into education. And so I, I studied, I did my first degree in psychology. And then I did my master's in counselling psychology. And then I had to do some further professional qualifications on top of that. And so then I was qualified as a counselling psychologist. And I've, and I've been working in kind of like mental health services, predominantly as a therapist uh, for over 20 years now. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's great. I mean, just yeah. all the people that you must have helped. Um, so then let me ask you a question professionally. Okay. I, I, I know you've only just met me and Polly, but um, what is Polly's hang up with uh, harmonica? Why does he not like harmonica? What is, what psychologically do you think is going on there? <laughs> I can tell you. Okay. I can tell you. I think he's because he's very wise and he's very tasteful because it's a very irritating and squeaky instrument. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> he, he, he's right, you know, there's, there's no disputing that. I, I would like to point out too, I was reading in The Lancet the other day that a disproportionate amount of people who knew Lee Thompson in his 20s uh, moved into the field of psychology. Who knew? It's an interesting connection, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay or, well, ended up, or ended up seeing a psychologist one or the other <laughs> well, this is one you might know a little bit better. we like to announce Mr Humphrey Ocean Come forward, Humphrey. This is Mr. Humphrey Oates, Mr. an adult which we hope you would all like to find. Madness, madness, I'm going 
so Hector, you had told me that you had been working on a book recently too, yeah? Yeah, so I'd started writing a book uh, some years ago and then I, during the lockdown, I kind of revisited it. And so I finished it and it's not published. So if you know a publisher in America, I'd be really happy to you know sign a contract. Uh, and so basically uh, it's, it, it's the kind of first half of my life, I suppose, roughly. So it starts off with uh, the context of, I think loosely there might be a theme of all the things that I, you know, where I came from, my parents, you know, my, my um, very kind of, my dad particularly, very working class background. My grandfather worked on the docks in Liverpool and there's loads of stories about that kind of attitude to authority and life. And, you know, there's a, have we got time? There's a, 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 you know, one of my favourite stories that my, you know, two stories my dad told me about the kind of docks, you know, with the shipbuilders in Liverpool from the 1940s, 50s, probably. So there was the one story whereby uh, the dock worker, in those days, all, they, they had big um, stone walls all around the, the docks. And you, there was a gate to get in and a gate to get out so that nothing could be stolen and people were going to work and that was it. So this guy goes in, clocks on to work early in the morning, walks up to the end of the dockyard, climbs over the wall and goes to the pub. Spent all day in the pub and had a heart attack and died on the floor of the boozer during the working day. So the landlady and all the other guys in the pub, they pick up his body and they carry it back to the docks and they lift it over the wall and they leave him in the docks. And do you know why? The reason being that if he died on the job, his wife would get his pension. And, and if he died off the job, she wouldn't get the pension. So they made sure, they didn't, they didn't report his death, they made sure his wife and children would have money for the rest of their lives. I just, there's something about that kind of powerful survival instinct that you do the most bizarre things just to, to make sure that that happens. Um, yeah, so I kind of really like that. And then another story he told me was that when he was a kid, they used to go down to the docks, you know, they've just been, you know, little naughty boys. And apparently on, on another part of the docks, the, um, there was a row, there'd be toilets for the dock men to, to go to the toilet. And there'd be rows of kind of um, toilets, you know, for the men to sit on. And there were no doors left on them because all the doors had been stolen for firewood when people run out of money and stuff. So the guys would be sitting on the toilet. Is this okay for this prime time viewing? <laughs> so the guys would be sat on the toilet, <clears throat> reading the paper, smoking a fag, having a shit. And the... Um, and everybody could see them and the there was no flushing toilets it was just a little stream that went underneath the toilet and just flushed everything away probably into the sea and my dad and his friends used to get balled up newspaper quite a tight ball and then they'd go to the end of the stream and light light put the newspaper on fire and it would float down and the guys <laughs> So the guys sitting up in this shit, a piece of burning paper would go under them and they'd be like, fuck, 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 fu
and they all get burnt asses. <laughs> One of my dad's favourite stories there. <laughs> so anyway, it kind of starts, the, the it's very anecdotal, so there's loads of those kind of anecdotes in the story, and it, so it starts from that kind of um, beginning, and then we move to rural Wales, and then my disillusionment with life in the countryside and my escape, which I was incredibly lucky to have the most amazing escape route, which was my cousin was in a pop group and I went to work for them for six years or whatever it was. And so it's then tales of those adventures, traveling with madness and all the other stuff that we kind of got up to in London. Um, and I was in a skiffle band in London called the Skiff Scats. Have you heard? Yeah, you know. Um, so all that kind of stuff going on. And then it's my travels in India and Nepal and all around Europe. And then just kind of, and then I spent quite a lot of time. I spent a, um, several months in the South of France selling ice creams at one point. So it's, it's all those kind of travels and how eventually all of that kind of somehow led to this, like I said earlier, I was literally working in a hotel. having done all that adventuring, washing dishes, and I had this Eureka moment, I think I'm going to be a psychologist. So we kind of, so that's basically the, the story and, and then how I kind of, you know, did my studies and, and kind of started working. Yeah. It sounds amazing. I hope you do find a publisher because I would love to read that. I mean, I'm kind of the resident bookworm for Stateside Madness, but I, I would love to read that. So Let's hope some somebody listening. If you, uh, yeah, if, if you're in, if you work for a publishing company, you're interested, email us at statesidemanis at gmail.com and maybe we can put you in touch. That'd be brilliant. Yeah, love it. That it would. And, and Hector, uh, not not to um, appoint myself the uh, tourism chief for uh, for Wales, but. Um, <laughs> I, I got to spend some time in Cardiff and oh, cool. uh, this was on a trip in the UK um, and of anywhere we went, um, it was just so refreshing to be in a place where people were uh, vastly more interested in talking to you and uh, so kind and gentle and warm that um, of, of everywhere we went, I said, that's the place first stop. I'm going there. We're going to get back there again. Just, I, I absolutely adored it. And I'm dying to get back. Cardiff is a, is a wonderful city. I, um, <clears throat> I, I did my first degree at the university in Cardiff. And I don't know if you remember, there's the castle in the middle of the city. And then there's this beautiful, massive park area, which is kind of creeps right into the city center. Uh, yeah, no, it is. And, People are a bit more friendly, I think. I think out of the major cities of the UK, and then the, you know, the more into the kind of countryside, you probably get a, you know even more curiosity and and more of a welcome. It and it's a nice it's a nice city, size city. It's quite compact, but it's quite a lot going on. And yeah, come back. We'll meet up and have a coffee or a beer or something. We should maybe for uh, the house of. Uh... House of Fun Weekender. If I if I make it over there in November, I'll I'll make it a point to go there. Have you been to any of those before? No, uh, and of course, this being the last one, um, I'm trying, trying, trying desperately to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll we'll see uh, what this uh, uncertain time brings us. Yeah, because I've not been to any of those. 
So, I mean, because of where I live, I'm like 200 miles from Cardiff is the nearest city. <clears throat> so whenever they play Cardiff, we, you know, I always go up and I've taken my kids there and, or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the children's friends and etc. cetera. Um, and I've never done a, one of those weekenders. And I'm thinking maybe I should see if I can go, as, it, as you say, it's the last one, isn't it, in November? Last chance. Mm-hmm. Last chance to do. Right. Well, it kind of feels like we're we're coming to a, a natural end to this discussion, and and it's been so cool. We really appreciate Hector you taking time out to speak with us. And Polly and I kind of have a tradition where we usually end the episode. We we play out a, a song, and Polly and I haven't really talked about what song we're going to end this episode with. If you had to pick one song, uh, Hector. Probably, I would assume a madness song since it's a madness podcast. Um, for us to end the episode with, what song would you recommend that we end it with? Oh God, yeah. It, it, well, it's got to be a madness song, hasn't it? Let's let's go. Let's stick with that. Because I noticed on your on your list of questions, it was like, "What do you have a favorite song?" And it's like, "Oh my gosh." Do you know? I I I always used to like um, my girl being done live. There's something about it when they play live and it's, and they're and they're on form and it's really really tight. It's it's there's something really really powerful about that song. Oh gosh, what are we going to go for? I think we might be able to find a live version of My Girl. Oh, that'd be wicked. Yeah, yeah. There, are, there are some. There are live recordings being released. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, um, cool. And All it right. kind of reminds me of you know being on tour and stuff. Good memories. Yeah. all right well Hector thank you so much this has been really great our listeners are going to love this so thank you for taking time I know that you're very busy been an absolute pleasure well thank you you. I really enjoyed it actually it's great oh good all right so that brings this episode of Stateside Madness to an end thank you again to Hector Walker uh, for being very generous with your time and with your stories we loved hearing about your time with the band good luck with your book So we're going to end then as Hector had chosen. This is going to be a a live version of My Girl. So two weeks from now, guys, tune in. Uh, We're going to be doing an episode about Madstock, the legendary concert 1992 that brought the boys back together. And on that note, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Go get a beer, Stateside Madness. To see the film tonight I found it hard to say She thought I'd had enough of her What who can't she see? She's lovely to me But I like to stay And watch TV on my own every now and then My girl's met at me Been on the telephone for an hour We hardly said a word 
Everything 